Hello, friends, and welcome to the Currently Workshopping podcast, a show where we walk through the perils and frisson of being alive together. I'm your host, Cece, and I'm so honored to have you join me today for our very first episode ever. This podcast has been quite a while in the making, and I'm so excited to chat through this week's topic. Is it stupid to quit your nine to five job to become an influencer? I'm sure we've all seen or at least heard of beauty TikToker Michaela Nogueira's TikTok from 2021, where she says, I literally just finished work and it's 519. Try being an influencer for a day. Try it. There's been a ton of backlash and discourse around this resurfaced video, and I think people have seen it as both an opportunity to rightly critique Michaela for how tone deaf the video was and wrongly harass a young woman venting about work after receiving a comment trying to minimize what she did for work. There's this weird double standard right now in our society when it comes to work too. The rise of the anti-work movement, which advocates for laboring only as much as needed rather than laboring for the purposes of creating excess capital, would seem to suggest that we would applaud individuals who have managed to extricate themselves from the clutches of being an employee for a corporation. But there is also a marked disdain for influencers who quit their nine to fives. There's certainly a misogynistic overlay over the whole thing too. Influencing is a field that is predominantly women and men tend to fly more under the radar and are seen as internet personalities or the more neutral term creators. But that's a conversation for another day. I don't consider myself an influencer really, but do appreciate that under some people's definitions, I am. And I also appreciate that influencer is one of those newer terms that's still shifting and changing and trying to settle within society at large. But this whole kerfuffle about whether influencing is a real job or hard work got me thinking about whether and when it's ever advisable to quit your traditional corporation paid job to pursue something more creative, whether it be writing a novel, creating digital content such as on YouTube or travel photography or being an influencer. So growing up, my parents had pretty split views on the relationship between work and passion. When I told them that I was quitting my lucrative but demanding big law job to write a book of all things, I got pretty split responses from them, as you can imagine. My mom basically said, Burning out is never a good thing, especially when it's not something you are obsessively loving. Follow your heart and I'm confident that you will find your path to a meaningful life that you want. Now note that this is not what my mom would have said in high school. In high school, she was very much kind of a tiger mom and took the position that if something was hard, if there was something that I didn't really like love that I should still push through it because the point of life is not necessarily to feel this burning passion. The point of life is to work hard and excel at everything. When my first high school friend got married, I remember my mom actually turned to me and said, oh honey, why isn't it you? And of course, you know, it's the classic, oh, you want your kid to get married thing. But also I was like, mom, what are you talking about? Like, why would I get married right now? And she actually did say to me, well, honey, you were first at everything. So I thought you'd be first at marriage too. So that's kind of what I was working with. So I was pretty surprised when she did feel like I could take a break or step back and try to pursue something more coherent and more aligned with what I wanted to do. I think in the past few years, she herself has gone through a lot of changes and that's precipitated her entree into more hippy dippy thinking, I would say. And honestly, that aligns a bit more with how I view life. My dad, on the other hand, is a much more pragmatic person. And he basically said, I always thought you might leave your job to do something you felt more passionate about, but didn't think that it would be now. I thought it would happen later, like after you bought a house which as a millennial um, really is hilarious because the thought of being able to buy a house, the thought of being able to buy 
property in the neighborhoods that I want at a rate that makes sense is just, it's, it's mildly hilarious. My dad was one of those people who, even though I knew he worked hard, I never actually saw him talk about work. He never talked about it, never brought it home and really used work as a means to fund his other hobbies. And he did have a lot of hobbies. Honestly, I think he has probably like the best work-life balance out of the whole family um, between my mom and me. So in that way, they were kind of supportive about me quitting my job to pursue my passion. And if you want to hear more about my relationship with my parents and what I learned about work from them, you can head over to the Patreon where the bonus episode this week is just about that, my relationship with my parents and how that impacted how I came to view work. But on top of my parents' opinions, of course, there are just a ton of opinions from people I didn't know online. This, of course, isn't unique to me. I know that many creators get this type of feedback and I'm no stranger to the myriad comments about how X creator's content is boring now or nothing now without Y traditional job. Like, I get that. I get that someone who used to follow someone to see what the lifestyle of a software engineer was would maybe not want to see the prototypical influencer lifestyle funded solely by SpawnCon. Like that makes sense. What I think we're seeing here is a very real paradigm shift for what it means to be a digital creator. I'm gonna use the term creator here, although it also encompasses the term influencer. And when I say influencer here, I am thinking about the more traditional Instagram influencer. And I wanna be a little bit more precise with the terms that I'm using. So. I think the beginnings of being a digital creator wasn't actually an influencer. No, I, I think it came along two realms. One was the YouTuber and one was the blogger. The YouTuber uh, was this mix of amateur comedy, how-tos, and of course, like video editing skills that for the time back then was really, really impressive. I know the word du jour is relatable when it comes to creators, but for the first wave of YouTubers, I don't really think that they were relatable. They were more entertainers first and foremost. Uh, bloggers in parallel with the YouTubers, these are the travel bloggers, the mommy bloggers, all these nice websites with aesthetic photos and photographs underneath. They also weren't relatable. They were more aspirational. So we have this era of YouTubers and bloggers, and I think they're really the first digital creators. The YouTubers are entertaining and the bloggers, they are aspirational. But then with the rise of Instagram, the bloggers moved to Instagram. And you can kind of see how the relationship between blogging and Instagram came to be. It's like the writing got shorter and shorter until they became captions and the posts became picture first rather than paragraphs first. And then this kind of fed into the rise of creators as influencers. The key word of this era is aspirational. This belief that with a little more effort, a little more money, whatever, then this too could be yours. Instagram influencers and blogging to an extent was really a great setup for the infusion of advertising into digital media. Ads can be many things, but they often are aspirational. So it was a perfect thematic fit between the aspirational ads that brands wanted to create and the aspirational lifestyles that the influencers portrayed. The YouTubers the entertainers, uh, they're not as clear of a fit for this rise of the influencers, but you know, 
it still worked. Like, yes, I guess I will maybe sit through an ad in order to watch Domizetti bro out more, but it's also not clearly as a fit, but I'll still do it. And I think in this way, like the YouTubers also became more influencers in their own right because of the infusion of capital through advertising. And even though the origins of digital creators, YouTubers and bloggers were slightly different, the rise of Instagram and the insertion of advertising into everything kind of pushed them more in the same direction albeit at slightly different angles. The next major paradigm shift I would say took place in spring and summer of 2020, which should ring a bell for all of y'all. This was the beginning of the pandemic and TikTok's meteoric rise. It really was a perfect storm. TikTok's in-app filming and editing and a lot of people with traditional jobs stuck at home. I think a lot of us were kind of bored at home and at least for me, I never would have been brave enough or had enough time to figure out how to film and edit a whole freaking YouTube video of all things, but give me my phone, tell me it only has to be a minute, take away all the other creative joys I had in my life through the pandemic. And I was kind of like, why not? The barrier to entry was just so much lower. The activation energy required was so much lower than ever before. Of course, if you were in healthcare during this time, you were not having the same experience, but I think you were also feeling the loneliness and the crushing nature of the pandemic, um, probably even to way more of an extent than any of us not in healthcare could even imagine. And I think that also created this urge to reach out and communicate. And the lower activation energy, the lower barrier to entry, can kind of be seen as being responsible for also the waves of nurses and doctors who got into TikTok during that time. So we saw this whole new cohort of creators that we hadn't seen before. And we as viewers got to see lifestyles and learn about traditional jobs in a way that we hadn't before. I think this is when relatability started overtaking aspirational as the linchpin word for creators. In the influencer era, we the audience had a voyeuristic curiosity about how the other half lived. The people richer than us, hotter than us, better dressed than us. But with the rise of relatability as a cornerstone, our voyeuristic curiosity shifted a little to zero in on people who seemed like we could become one day or could have been in another universe. Let's call this paradigm the digital creator as neighbor. So first we had the era of the digital creator as entertainer through YouTube, and then the digital creator as influencer through bloggers and Instagram. And now I think we're in the era of digital creator as neighbor. There is a sense of proximity and and intimacy that's present that wasn't there before. Like I didn't feel like Jenna Marbles would ever wind up living next door to me, you know? And just like neighbors, modern day creators can run the gamut. I think this is especially noticeable in the fact that the parasocial term bestie runs rampant on TikTok. It gives this feeling that, you know, maybe they are just like your best friend from school that you might see the next day. But neighbors can also be as diverse and different from you as like a classmate's dad who's a professor. You don't really have anything in common with them maybe, but you do know that they exist and you do know that they live, you know, three doors down from you and are still accessible in that way. So I think this is the era that we're mainly in right now, which also means that we're in an era where a lot of people with traditional jobs are creators and wondering if they could ever use digital creation as a means to jumpstart more artistic passions. 
We have proofs of concept here. Think Donald Glover, Issa Rae, Quinta Brunson, anyone who has gotten a book deal from a blog to like James Clear and Atomic Habits, Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving, an excuse my language, fuck. Point is that digital creators feel closer to us than ever and their trajectories also feel closer to us than ever. And I think that means that we are both nosier about their lives because it feels like it implicates or overlaps with our own and that we're more prone to feelings of jealousy because of their proximity to our own lives compared to say Beyonce. It's really easy to feel happy for Beyonce when something good happens to her, like winning a Grammy. It's a lot harder to feel happy for your neighbor when something good happens to them, like if they won a Grammy. You might feel a little bit more prone to jealousy, or at least I know I definitely would. I find this current paradigm that we're in really interesting because I think it mirrors the paradigm shift more generally that we've seen for artists over the years. William Dershowitz, a former English professor at Yale, wrote in 2015 that the category of artist was undergoing and had already undergone several paradigm shifts in how we conceive of what and who an artist was. Artists, they started off as artisans. There is a reason why artist and artisan stem from the same root, art meaning to join or fit together. And artists served apprenticeships like other craftsmen. If you wanted to learn how to make a table or a chair, you went through essentially the same training and process as someone who wanted to study painting under Rembrandt. This is kind of like the digital creator as entertainer era that I first talked about. You want to create something, put something together, draw something out of something else. In the late 18th and early 19th century, though, this was the era of the great romantics, Beethoven, Rousseau. It became glamorous to break rules and celebrate individuality. And the artist became seen as like the lone genius. This is where that idea comes from. Artists were seen as having been struck by divine inspiration. This is probably the romanticization speaking to and the aestheticist slogan of art for art's sake cropped up in the 19th century. The focus on aesthetic sounds like the second phase I talked about, right? The digital era as influencer, celebrations of youth, rule breaking, aestheticism, beauty for beauty's sake, this like otherworldly quality that you aspire to, but you know that you're not quite. This idea of being struck by divine inspiration is of course altogether appealing. I mean, who wouldn't want to be touched by the hand of God? And this image of the artist as a solitary genius still has its hold on us today, even though Dershowitz posits that the artist as solitary genius is actually an obsolete concept. So after World War II, he explains, society institutionalized art. We had museums, opera houses, arts councils, magazines. We basically put art into the structures of capitalism so that yes, art could be funded, but also so that certain people could profit from art. This is what Dershowitz calls the professionalization of art. So we went from artist as artisan to genius to now professional. If you wanted to be an artist, you go to grad school, like an MFA is a professional degree for artists. You get fellowships and then try to find a job in an educational institution. I love this description of the professionalization of art because it's so true. Like the solitary genius artist that I think we kind of think about, right? When we think about like Hemingway, they can be unprofessional. They can drink all day, do tons of drugs, write or paint their masterpieces in a drug-fueled fever dream. And we're just like, okay, okay, good for you. But the reality is that for most aspiring artists today, they can't be unprofessional. When trustees, like funders, ask you where something is, you can't be like, oh no, sorry, I missed the deadline. <laughs> so instituting MFAs and all of these structured programs for artists means that artists now train under the same scheduling constraints and the same structure as more classically professional careers. Your accountants, your consultants, your lawyers, your doctors. 
This is also similar to something that I saw happening for the digital creator as influencer era a couple years back. Becoming an influencer slowly became a bit more intentional and less incidental. You had less of the people who just started a blog to start a blog and share with other moms and that gained traction. And you had more of the people who would take steps to gain notoriety to become influencers. You had like career influencers who set out to be influencers from day one using their college or career or a TV show as the backdrop to show what they wore, the aesthetic of it all, their lifestyle, get you interested in their entire life. There's no influencer school, right? It's not like you get an MFA in influencing, but there are some key pipelines that have popped up. Fashion jobs, for example, or Bama Rush, or getting onto The Bachelor. Even though a bachelor degree does not have any bearing on your influencer career, getting onto The Bachelor does have a distinct bearing on becoming an influencer. And there just became a lot more concrete ways to enter into this influencer career. This article was written back in 2015, but Dershowitz noted that we were entering a new era, the artist as an entrepreneur. It's a great article if you do wanna take a look at it, but his point is basically that in the era of the internet, there's a direct relationship between the market and the artist that really wasn't there before. And now in order to succeed as an artist, you kind of have to really be conscious about the business behind the art. This isn't unique to art though. I think we've seen a collapse in many parts of society of the dependence on and protection by larger systems and corporations. You used to be able to work a job for 20 years and get a hell of a pension. Now the employer employee relationship is basically deteriorating. We've all heard stories or seen our own relatives screwed by employers to whom they had devoted their lives to. So there's this book, The Alliance, and it's written by Reed Hoffman, Ben Casanocha, and Chris Yeh back in 2014. Reed was the co-founder and chairman of LinkedIn. So he spent a lot of time thinking about just like job and networks and like what the purpose of work is. In that book, the idea is basically that globalization and the tech revolution have disintegrated the long-term pact between employee and employer. And yes, I know this was like an unspoken pact, but it was still a pact nonetheless. Now there's no guarantee of lifetime employment and training in exchange for lifelong loyalty, which I would argue my parents definitely operated under the assumption that as long as you had loyalty, your company would take care of you. So there's been this relentless decay of the employer-employee relationship. Now, instead of lifelong loyalty, there are performance-based tours of duty that are periodically up for renewal by both sides, which yes, does give the employee in some circumstances a little bit more leverage, a little bit more opportunity to negotiate if two years in, they get a better offer, but it also loosens this connection between the employee and the employer, and the employer can be just as fickle as the employee would like to be. In light of this rise of free agency in work and the deterioration of the employer-employee relationship, it's not actually that surprising that the creators as neighbor cohort would move away from the employer-employee relationship to pursue art on their own terms, try to move out of the neighborhood, so to speak. But the question is, should they? Should you? Should I? Dershowitz had an interesting perspective here that really did make me wonder if I had made a huge mistake by quitting my job. He published a book in 2020, The Death of the Artist, which thesis is essentially that we're in an era of producerism. 
So we all know what consumerism is, and one would argue that we are in an era of consumerism where the world at large and the market is trying to get us successfully many times to buy as many things as possible. The market, however, in producerism seduces everyone into believing that they can be artists in order to sell them things. So by entering this new phase where creation is democratized through TikTok, through just the availability and the ease of you know, even getting this podcast to you, there's also a new opportunity for consumerism, the consumption of tools by would-be creators. Dershowitz found it interesting that creators present not just their work now and not just themselves, but also their life or lifestyle or process on their website. He kind of thought this was like a bad thing, but I think a more generous reading that I would say is that it's mostly sharing the process of creation, the process of any lifestyle. 10 years ago, I wouldn't have known the first thing about how to edit a YouTube video, how to make a podcast, how to become a screenwriter. I just didn't see people online sharing their processes and their lives. And because of that, I didn't know a lot about how to pursue my life. I didn't even know about the realm of possibility that was available to me. So I honestly think this is kind of a good thing, but I understand that it does seem like a commodification essentially of life and lifestyle. And maybe we shouldn't be living in a world where every part of our life is just able to be packaged into something for someone else to view and consume. So in this book, Dershowitz also interviews professional artists, and they all said that while it's easier than ever to make art, it's much, much harder to make a living doing it professionally. Often the artists must make art while working another job. So as we're seeing digital creators quit their traditional jobs to maybe try to become influencers or maybe try to do something a bit more creative than their current nine to five or maybe not even nine to five, I think we're leaving the neighbor paradigm behind and merging with the artist as entrepreneur paradigm, entering the era of digital creators as entrepreneurs. And this is supported by what I've seen the superstar YouTubers, TikTokers, Instagrammers do, right? They launch beauty lines or fragrances. They start VC funds. They offer courses. There's a diversification happening that's now just assumed to be necessary in order to survive. So the question of whether it's stupid to quit your nine to five job to pursue an artistic passion is in the modern era, really a question of whether you think you'll succeed as an entrepreneur. More than two thirds of startups never deliver a positive return to investors. But knowing that the modern day passion pursuit is more like launching a startup is actually really helpful. There are so many resources for startups and advice on how to succeed and whatnot. One of the major themes in all of these startup advice columns that I've read is know your customers and know your business partners. Tom Eisenman, a professor at Harvard Business School, he highlighted two major findings from surveying a bunch of failed startups, two avoidable reasons for failure, and they both have to do with people. First is not knowing your customer or your audience. Who are you creating for? Do they actually want what you're offering or are you offering something because you want to offer it? I think this distinction is really important because inherently putting yourself out on the internet, I get the comments when people are like, who cares or who asked? Like, you know what? You're right. Who cares and who asked? And if I never think about who would care or who asked, my content would be a lot more self-serving, a lot more all about me. And uh, okay, you know, I, I see the irony. I'm talking about me on a podcast that's hosted by me, but I 
hope that like my hope is that it is not about me. It's about being able to offer something valuable to others and make others feel not alone in the same way that my consumption of art, like my consumption of my favorite art, my favorite movies, my favorite books. The one thing they have in common is that they help me feel a little bit less alone in the world and they help me feel like I am figuring out something about life along the way. And then the second major mistake that Professor Eisenman points out is also getting into business with bad partners. This is co-founders, business partners, and they seem like a good idea ahead of time, right? Because you always it's always nicer to work on something together with a friend, but there's always a danger to mixing business and friendship. When it works, it works out really well, but when it doesn't, you not only lose your business venture, but also your friend. I was fascinated by the call her daddy split when it happened. And I think this was like one of the prime examples of getting into business with your friend. It works really well. Like they were such a good crew up until their big falling out. And I think knowing who you're getting into bed with, knowing who has a stake in what you're doing, um, that's just really important in life overall. And I think why so many people spend so much time thinking about who to date, who to marry, because those decisions have such an impact on your life overall. I know that I would have a totally different life and totally different outlooks and probably wouldn't have quit my job, honestly, if I didn't have the support of my partner. So I think this is why it's hard for anyone but yourself to predict whether it makes sense to quit your nine to five to pursue something artistic. It's like trying to guess whether a startup will make it or not. In an earlier paradigm, maybe like the entertainer paradigm or the influencer paradigm, the inquiry would be a lot more dependent on like how funny you were or like how good of a photographer you were. But in today's paradigm of creator and um, probably even everyone as an entrepreneur, there's no certainty in any career. I think the flip side of this is that the uncertainty is just a given and your nine to five job actually isn't as certain as you think it is or hope it is. And there's not much you can do about it besides try your best and prepare for the worst, all the while knowing that there's tons of people all the time betting against your startup because that's unfortunately just life. But life also means that there's tons of people who are hoping that you succeed. And that's all for this episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I know there are so many podcasts out there in the world, so know that I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to mine. I've linked the articles that I refer to in the show notes below, as well as my website, where you can find all of my socials and other projects. If you enjoy this episode, I'd really appreciate your taking the time to subscribe and leave a review. It helps me out a ton. I'll see you next week.